Uh, thanks a lot, Paul. That was awesome. And John and George and Ringo, the Fab Nine, uh, who are here today. That's, that song, uh, written by Paul McCartney in 1964, under pressure from his manager. The Beatles manager said, we need a follow-up hit to I Want to Hold Your Hand, and we need it now. So they checked themselves into a five-star hotel in Paris, because I guess that's what you do when you're the Beatles. And so you go to this hotel, and here's some pictures from them writing this number one hit song, Can't Buy Me Love. And on the B side, it was You Can't Do That, and maybe some of you still have it. And maybe some of you uh, recognize Grandma up on the screen in the middle, you know, uh, screaming for, for the Fab Four uh, during there. The idea behind it, Paul said, this song, Can't Buy Me Love, is pretty simple. It was that all these material possessions are all very well, but they won't buy me what I really want. I could buy you diamond rings, I could buy you all these things, but it's not going to buy me love. And what Paul was realizing for us in these lyrics is a biblical point. I know, I know, I know that there's, there, there's a place and a, and a time for things, but sometimes the line that we draw between spiritual and secular isn't biblical. In fact, most of the times when we draw it, it isn't biblical. So I want you to understand why we do a song like that here at worship. It's not that we're trying to be trendy. I mean, how trendy are you when the song is, what, 60 years old almost? It, it, it's not to be innovative. It, it's not to like give in to culture or those kinds of things. It is to be biblical. It is to be biblical. When Jesus taught, how did he teach? People who say, well, you know, when you teach in church, it, it should be line by line, verse by verse. Well, Jesus didn't teach that way. Neither did his apostles. He taught by telling stories, by telling parables, by giving illustrations, by, by, by painting pictures for people, by, by, by showing them images with, with his words. And, and he would tell stories about ordinary things. A, a farmer went out to plant seed in, in his farm, in his, in his land. And here's what happened. There was a man walking down that road you all know from Jerusalem to Jericho, the winding road, and, and here's what happened. A father had two sons, a, a rich man had a manager, and on and on these stories go, everyday life, stories about fishing and agriculture, stories about business, stories about the marketplace, stories that people could relate to, so that Jesus could communicate these deeper spiritual points, life-saving points, life-changing points, and that's why we do it. It's the same reason we do this music, because I am not standing here claiming that Paul McCartney was reading Luke 16 when he wrote the lyrics to Can't Buy Me Love, but he could have been because they're right out of the, out of the scriptures. The, the, the lyrics match perfectly. This is Jesus' point. Money can't buy you love. Turn to the person next to you, wherever you are, whatever local site, whatever campus you're, you're worshiping with us online or you're here in the worship center and say, you know, all your money can't buy love. Go ahead and just say that. Just, just tell people. Let, let's, let's make that biblical point. That yes became the title of, of a hit song. But this is why we do the music we do for Vacation Bible School every summer. The kids love it. We, we take tunes that are great, great tunes. As, as somebody once famously said, uh, why should the devil have all the good music? We take these great tunes with lyrics that are just wrong on every possible level, right? And we redeem the lyrics, and so we put Bible-based lyrics, like Can't Buy Me Love, that's a Bible-based phrase that aligns perfectly with Luke 16, and we put those Bible-based lyrics onto tunes that kids already know. 
so that when they hear that tune the rest of their life, they're going to hear it and they're going to say, ah, but I know a better version of that song. And they're memorizing scripture and they're memorizing Bible stories and they're getting closer to God in the process. That's why we do what we do. That's why we sing the songs that we sing and show the clips that we show and, and have the illustrations that we have because it's biblical. This is the way Jesus did it. Sometimes the lines we draw between the spiritual life and the secular life are way too thick, especially when we get confronted by a gospel story like this in Luke 16, where Jesus says, you know, you spiritual people, you children of light could, live, could learn something from the children of this world on this one. The spiritual folks could learn something from the secular folks, in other words, Jesus is saying, when it come, and could learn a, a godly principle, could learn something when it comes to how you see your money, how, how, you, how you manage money, how you think about money and possessions and, and materials. We could have done another song. We almost did this. And instead of the Beatles, we were going to go with Bob Dylan, who uh, wrote famously the song in 1979, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And I'm pretty sure... Even though I should never sing a solo in this church because I love you too much, if we ever do a cover of a Bob Dylan song, I could do it. I, I could, because I can sing as good as him. There's no doubt about that. I can't, I can't write lyrics as good as him, but I could, sing, I could sing as good as him or Bruce Springsteen, who I also love. They have great songs, but the, neither one of those guys can sing. Let's just be honest about it. But, but they're incredible musicians, and they have incredible bands, and Bob Dylan has been almost every religion at some point in his life. And he's landed with Jesus. Because, you know, once you land there, you realize what it is. And sometime around 1979, he wrote these lyrics, which really are Bible-based. And he's writing it from a Christ-centered perspective. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Oh, you're going to have to serve somebody. You know, you're you're going to have to. <laughs> you're going to have to do it. No matter who you are, at some point, you're going to have to choose. You're going you're gonna to serve yourself. You're going to serve somebody's opinion of who you're supposed to be. You're going to serve a world that tells you what your values are, but they're not really your values, but you'll adopt them so that you can fit in with the world you're serving the world. You're going to serve your, your, your people, influencers in your life who, who tell you what you should do. You're going to serve somebody. The, 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 the popular kids at school that you want to be like them, you're going to serve them if you sacrifice your soul for them. You could serve money, too. You're going to serve something or somebody. You can give your life to something that doesn't have the potential to give you what you have been told it's going to give you. And that takes us back to Luke 16, which is Jesus' teaching, and Luke 12 as well. In fact, this whole section of Luke's gospel, Jesus has all sorts of teaching when it comes to materialism, money, how we steward it or manage it, how, how, how we see it, how, how we take care of it, and how money, if we aren't careful, hooks us. It gets us, hook, line, and sinker. Jesus says this, he says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And there's a part of us that's like, yep, that's right, we know that, but then we go out and live like we don't believe it. You know why the temptation is so big for a lot of people to buy a lot of things? So that it can appear that I belong to a certain social or economic class. So that it can appear that I'm doing better. So that it can appear, so I can try to fake some people out. And even if I have to go into mountains of debt in order to do it, I'll do it because I, I wanna I wanna I want people to think that I'm that I'm doing it, that I'm making it. 
That's just one of the many ways money can get its hooks into us. Beware of that, Jesus says. Guard against it. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament speaks to this as well. King Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. And Ecclesiastes is kind of like Solomon's near the end of his life memoirs. He's, he, he's looking back over his life. A, a little bit of context for Solomon, if you don't know. He's the king of Israel. He's David's father, who will be the greatest king in the history of Israel. But Solomon's pretty great, too. He was considered the wisest king in the history of, of Israel, of God's people. The wisest king who ever lived and had that reputation even in his own day. And he was rich, financially rich, just loaded. He, he, he's, he's the one who built the palace and, and, and these grand things. He, he had, he had uh, all the pleasure that money could buy, he, the, the finest wines. He'd have women to entertain him, all, all this sort of stuff. Not living necessarily the most moral life all the time, to, to put it mildly. He had entertainers come in. It, it was like instead of going to the Jim Gaffigan uh, comedy show at, at Wells Fargo last weekend, uh, he, would, he would own these comedians and have them come in and entertain him. Solomon had power. He had an army at his disposal. He had prestige. He had social status. He had popularity. People loved him. And he was brilliant and everybody knew it. And he looks back over his life and he says, among other things, those who love their money, and I've had a lot of it, will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Statistically, this is true too. Law of sorts of research studies in the last decade say that at a certain point, I mean, if you're below the poverty line, it obviously it's going to be painful. But once you get past that line, once you kind of get into the, the world of middle class economically, the return just isn't anything. Because if you start making middle class money, you get there, you're like, oh, finally, I'm here now. Whew. This was always my goal. I made it. Here I am. I can you know, put a roof over my head or my family's head. And we can provide, we can eat, we can, we can take care of basic needs. Wow, this, is, this, is, this was the dream. And here we are, we, we, we worked our way out of poverty, worked really hard, we got to this point, that's great, that's worth celebrating. And this is probably as good a moment as any in the sermon to pause and make sure you hear this. God is not against you making money. Anybody who's taught you that or told you the Bible says that is doing you a great disservice. It's spiritual malpractice. God is not against wealth. God is not against you getting rich. God is not against any of that. It's how you do it. And it's how much of your heart you give to it that God is really interested in. Because God has our best interests in mind. So you get to that level where you think, okay, finally, I can put, you know, take care of basic needs. And you get there, and here's the trick. And, and, and King Solomon, the wisest king, points this out. If you fall in love with that, if you've made that your goal, even when you get there, it won't be enough. So you're making 50000 Oh, I need $100,000. you are making 100 I need 200 you're making 200, you know, a half a million would be good. If you make a half a million, you're like, well, there's always Bill Gates. You know, and, and then there's other people out there. There's always going to be somebody who's got more. And that's kind of the deeper issue underneath it. Then there's this other thing, this tendency we have as a human race. It's like, well, we, we're going to, if we're good people, right, we say, if we're good people, we're going to love you until you make too much money, then we're going to hate you. What is that? Envy is what it is. 
And it's a sin. It's deadly. I, I, I'll love you until you have... And, and then automatically, I'm just going to criticize and dismiss you because you're rich, because you own Amazon, because you own Tesla, because, because you own Microsoft, because you own Facebook. You, you're terrible because of the, they, they might be good or not good people for all sorts of other reasons, but it's not because of money. You don't have to buy your own spaceship and go into space in order to be satisfied with life. But boy, do we criticize it when it happens, and I get it. They're a little tone deaf. They go up, they take their brother and their friends, and they go up and they come back, and they just don't quite understand like how the rest of us live. I get it. But there's a lot of envy in there, too, because we have bought the lie. So many of us, maybe not you, I'm just talking about who I'm talking about, have bought the lie. If I could just get more I'd be okay. Then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be content. But Solomon tells us what we need to know. If you fall in love with that, you'll get trapped. You'll get hooked. And no matter how much you make, you'll never be satisfied. It'll never be enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. So we go on this treadmill or this revolving door, and it's almost like there's no exit for the revolving door. We just go round and round. We see something... It's lust, it's coveting sometimes too. See somebody else's house, I need a house like that. I see the car you drive, I, I need a car like that. I see the shoes you're wearing, I need shoes like that. I, I, I see something that somebody else has, I gotta have it. I see it, I want it, I buy it. And it makes me happy. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We don't have to pretend, oh well, you know, when you buy a new car, you're not gonna be happy. You're gonna be extremely happy. The smell, the, the new tie, the, 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 everything's new, the, it's exciting, it's like, especially if it was a gold car, you're going to be extreme, it's going to make you extremely happy for a while. How excited are you about your nine-year-old car? How excited were you when you got it? See what happens? It doesn't last. And that's the wisdom that Solomon is trying to point out to us here. And Jesus is. Over and over, this biblical teaching. You know, Jesus teaches more on money than he does on prayer. And it's not because Jesus doesn't think prayer matters. It matters a lot. He thinks, though, and knows that money is the most tempting idol of all. The biggest potential distraction to God. There are a lot of Christians who say, I'm all in with God. I mean, I show up. I'm present, I, 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 uh, I, I'm dedicated, I take the classes, I, I volunteer, I give my time, my talents, I serve. But money, eh. I, I don't want to hear sermons about that. You say, I don't want to hear, even though the Bible's full of stuff like that, teaching on what we do with our money. You're just supposed to pretend it's not there. And, and don't give me, I, I want a comfortable Jesus. Not the Jesus who is. I want a Jesus who blesses my views. I want a Jesus who confirms what I want to feel. But Jesus loves you too much, loves me too much to do that. He says, no, I actually want to set you free from that stuff that's keeping you from life. I want to set you, I want to give you liberty. I want to give you a better way, a deeper truth, a more abundant life. I want to make you rich. And it has nothing to do with finances. I want you to be satisfied. I want you to be content. I want you to be whole. I want you to have joy that's untouchable. And you can't get that here. Going on this hedonic treadmill, as it's called. We, we want it, we buy it, we're happy. 
The Amazon truck stopping at your house today instead of your neighbor's. How do you feel when you look out the window and it's like, oh, it's the neighbor. <laughs> but today is the day, right? They're, they're coming to you. He's like, yeah, 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 I'm so excited. I got my new sweater. Woo! Man, look at this. I got a new sweater. And it will make you happy. Yes, it does. It makes you happy for a while. How do you feel about your 12-year-old sweater now? Or even sometimes your two-month-old sweater. When I was a kid, think of it like the best gift you've ever gotten. Christmas, birthday. When I was a kid, it was an electric football set. Anybody know what I'm talking about? This metal board painted like a football field with goalposts and then all these plastic football players. Two different teams. You know, you had the 49ers and the Rams, I think, and the one we had. And so you'd line them up and you'd, set, you'd get your brothers in and you'd set up the plays. And it turns out 99% of the time you spend on electric football is setting it up. 1% is the actual play. Because when you actually hit the electricity, the guys you thought were going to go straight and move in for a touchdown start going, they start looping around. So you're like, time out! You pick them up, you try to, like, moving the little things in the bottom will change anything, right? You put them back. And so I was so excited on this Christmas morning because I knew all I ever really wanted as a seven or eight-year-old boy, whatever it was, was an electric football set with the 49ers and the Rams. That would just... I mean, what else could, a, could, could anyone need? And I got it. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I love everybody in this family who had any part of this. Thank you so much. You're, you're the best. This is just, I have the greatest life ever. Within two and a half weeks, it's in the storeroom. Because, you know, how often do you want to spend that much time to watch guys? And then you get the quarterback who's some remarkably, like, in some sort of mutant way, is four times bigger than all the other players, and he has an arm that goes like this. And you put the little felt thing in there, and you like flick it around. Ah! It gets a little boring after a while. It's not like it's something you can just do over and over and over again. Some of you are like, well, what happened to it? I'm sure my mom turned away. You're like, oh, you could have sold it on eBay for a million dollars. It's just money. And then what? You get the million dollars? Then what? Are you full? Is that going to be enough? This is the problem with the circle. Then we have to adapt. Then, then we say, well, i got to find something else then. It's consumerism. Materialism at its worst. And, and round and round we go, and we can't escape. We're on this treadmill that we can't break free from. King Solomon goes even deeper into it. He says this, look, anything I wanted I would take, he writes in Ecclesiastes 2. Anything I wanted, anything I saw, because he could buy it. Well, wouldn't that be great? Not according to the wisest king ever who was there. I got to the place where anything I wanted I could take. I denied myself no pleasure. If I wanted it, I took it. I even found great pleasure in hard work. So, you know, something a little more virtuous. I poured into that. Anything that isn't God. A reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, I realized it was all so meaningless. Like... Chasing the wind, like trying to grab something I can't hold on to. It's meaningless. Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, many a person thinks he's got, he has God and everything he needs when he has money and property. In them he trusts. Notice it's not in God we trust, which it says on our money. It's in the money we trust, if we're going to be honest about the way we live. 
In them he trusts, and of them he boasts so stubbornly and securely that he cares for no one. Surely such a man also has a god, mammon. The pursuit of wealth in a skewed, dark way. That is, money and possessions on which he fixes his whole heart. It's the most common idol on earth. Which is probably why Jesus teaches on it so much. Because he doesn't want you to worship idols. Because when you do, when I do, we lose God. We lose the one who could actually be the source of joy for us. The one who could give us life. Blessed are those who are poor, Jesus says. Well, that's kind of shocking. We're in this say what, making sense of Jesus' most shocking statements. It's a pretty shocking statement. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Is Jesus suggesting that, that you have to be poor in order to be blessed, in order to be happy? No. He's saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're, he goes on in the Beatitudes, it doesn't matter if you're poor or rich, it doesn't matter if you're weak or strong, it doesn't matter if you're grieving or filled with happiness for the day, it doesn't matter if you're persecuted or not being persecuted, it doesn't matter if you have something richer. The only thing that can truly give you wealth is a relationship with the one who made you, to know there is a God and this God loves you, to know there is a God and this God loves you, to know there is a God and this God loves you. That's how you find joy, peace, freedom, love, happiness, wealth. There is no other way to get it. So Jesus says, blessed. The Greek word here for blessed is makarioi. I haven't preached on this for like 15 years. Uh, everyone say makarioi. I'm not going to keep going. Because, you know, hips are going to swivel and it's going to really mess everybody up. <laughs> that song Macarena has nothing to do with the Greek word makarioi, but now you're going to have a harder time forgetting it. <laughs> makarioi means blessed. Makarioi is the original Greek word that's, that's here in Luke 6 and also in Matthew 5 that Jesus, uh, that's, that's written down for what Jesus said in his sermons. You'll be blessed, you'll have this makarioi, you'll have this untouchable joy. And you can't buy it with cash or investments. And you can't get it from possessions and material things. And you can't get it from being famous. Big survey of young adults and college students recently asked, what do you need in order to be happy in life? 80% said money, number one. 50% said fame. I need to be well known. Half of young adults say, I need to be famous, and 80%, four out of every five of them say, I need money in order to be happy. I get it. I mean, on a certain level, there's nothing wrong with being rich and famous. But ask the people who are rich and famous. You're sitting amongst them. You are, some of you. That's exactly who you are, rich or famous or both. Is it enough? Has it satisfied your soul? Let's listen to some of the people who are on the tip top of that mountain of fame and fortune. It doesn't get any higher. You may recognize them, they're celebrities, you may not. You may be, you know, kind of in that world of noticing all the celebrities and who they are. You, you may not recognize them. Just trust me when I tell you they're famous. Unbelievably famous, unbelievably rich. They have more money than they know what to do with. And there's a whole series of YouTube videos that you can watch on these. I, I took about six of them and edited them together, and I just want you to listen for a few minutes. Listen to their heart, listen to their wisdom, 
Listen to what they've learned from the perspective of people who probably have more money than you and probably have more fame than you. Take a look. Do you feel that you're happier right now than when you were broke or not really? Sometimes. Uh, it's a sometime thing. But I feel like the way that I have money kind of took away a lot of my happiness. Then what happened was, I then experienced the things that I was culturally indoctrinated to believe would be a kind of salvation. Fame, fortune, uh, attention, and yet salvation did not come. And I had worldly success in multiple industries. So I was successful in the music business, I was successful in modeling, in television, in real estate. So I made all this money and I had all this success. And here I was going, okay, I still don't feel any different. It's weird, dude. Like, fame is disgusting, horrible, gross, throw up, blech. I think it can completely destroy a human being. And it, it, I got to a point where- Did it almost destroy you? Complete, yeah, it almost completely destroyed me. But I was lucky enough by the grace of God to have people that care about me. Why am I unhapy? Okay. Okay, S S Stephanie Gaga hybrid person. Why are you unhappy? I had, I was a millionaire. I had a beautiful, beautiful women in my life. I had um, cars, a house, an incredible, uh, a solid gold career, and, and a future. And yet, on a daily basis, I wanted to commit suicide. When those things came, the, the happiness wasn't there, and I, I realized why that was. There was, a, there was such an attempt to achieve these things and to keep going that you lose sight of the people and the blessings that you have around you. A lot of people think getting famous will save you, that it will grant you the life you feel you're owed and spare you certain indignities. I was pretty bummed to realize that rather than lessening or eliminating my insecurities and least attractive qualities, it basically poured fertilizer on them. Has your happiness risen at the same amount as your bank account? No. That's the thing. They don't, they don't. They don't equate or they're they not tied in any way. They're not tied in to each other. If it's success, you can never get enough of that. I realize that it's like, it doesn't stop, it keeps calling you, it's like a drug. It's a hamster wheel. It's a hamster wheel, mm -hmm. and it's like, you're never satisfied. But if you place your importance on this, which is like, appreciation, appreciation, love, you know, it's like that, that is, that is enough. So you're saying that, that having a certain amount of money doesn't bring happiness at all? Because I would actually disagree with that. You can disagree with it if you want to. Yeah. Um, but money has nothing to do with your happiness. I've often said that I wished people could realize all their dreams and wealth and fame and so that they could see that it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion. Jim Carrey is an interesting dude. Um, he's seeking spiritually in some pretty major ways, best I can tell. He's... Um, probably the greatest comic actor of our lifetime in terms of success, in terms of being most popular, richest, biggest paychecks from movies. Do you notice he doesn't do them a whole lot anymore? He's not, what's he doing? He spends 99% of his vocational time painting portraits of Jesus Christ and crosses mostly with lots and lots and lots of color. Has he lost it? Or is he pretty close to finding it? 
There's a question that haunts, I think, the common thread through every celebrity that you just heard that could be haunting you too. But you don't have to get rich and famous in order to have this question haunt you. You, you could be the least famous person in the world and, and struggling financially. But at some point, the question that's going to haunt us is, is this it? Is there anything more to life than this? If I live, first and foremost, just to get more money as the ultimate goal of my life, or to get more famous as the ultimate goal of my life, even if I get it, that question's going to haunt me. It, it haunts every single one of those celebrities you just heard from. Isn't there more? Is this it? How come this didn't do Everybody told me this is what I needed to do. Make this kind of money, this kind of fame, reach this mountaintop. I reached it. Really disappointing. Anticlimactic. Is this it? Who told me this would be it? Pretty much the whole world told you that your whole life. And we get so hooked into it, we teach our kids. This is how you're going to find it. This is how you're going to be happy in life. This is how you're going to make it. This is the most important thing. We teach our kids directly or indirectly sometimes. The most important thing. Faith, relationship with God, relationship with friends, other people, secondary. Nice. We'll, we'll go to church when we can fit it in. But we're not going to let it get in the way of you becoming famous and getting a D1 scholarship. We're not going to let it get in the way of you making sure that you get the best education so you can make the most money. Please, do not misunderstand the biblical point or my heart in proclaiming this to you today. Because I'm hearing it too. It's challenging to me too. Do we want comfortable Jesus or do we want the better Jesus? The Jesus who actually is. The Jesus who loves us enough to say, I don't want you to get stuck there. So I'm going to give you some tough love, Jesus says, and I'm going to tell you, the way you're going isn't going to end the way you think it's going to end. It isn't going to take you where you think it's going to take you. It isn't going to achieve. It isn't going to satisfy. It isn't going to bring contentment to you. It isn't going to be enough. But so much of our culture is wrapped around this, this, this just assumed truth that if you get rich and you get famous, that's all you need. Those are our gods. It's the god of our culture. A rich man like that comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I have to do to get a full life, an eternal life, a new life? What do I have to do to inherit your kingdom? Jesus says, what do the scriptures declare? He says, love. Listen to that, love. Everyone say love. love. There it is, it's love. The scriptures say love God with everything you've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is right, do this and you'll live. You'll have a full life. Notice Jesus doesn't say, make sure you're famous, make sure you're making enough money, and if you have time to love people along the way, do that. If you have time to invest in your faith, treasures in heaven, invest in those things too. But the thing you live for is, is the other investments. Not only is there nothing wrong with making faithful, good, uh, productive investments financially, God's for it. You have to be a faithful steward, the Bible says. That's your call. Be faithful stewards of your money. Invest wisely. Uh, think it through. Budget things. Uh, manage it. Get out of debt. Do these things. That's, that, there are biblical principles that encourage us to do all those things. But don't ever fall into the trap of getting hooked into thinking that that's going to be enough. That then you will have arrived. You'll, you'll be better, but you won't arrive. 
Love, Jesus says to this rich man. You've got, to lo- you've got wealth. You need to learn how to love more. The rich man says, well, well, I'm doing these things. But Jesus knows his heart. He knows he isn't. He's, he's that follower of God, that child of God, who's the child of light, who's like, I believe in God. I'm for God. I, I, I get it. But I like comfortable God. The God who tells me just love. You know, lo- love the people who love me. Now, Jesus says, love your enemies. Oh, that's what you mean by love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, I believe in God. Isn't that enough? Sure, it's enough to get you saved in the sense of, you know, God's grace is big enough. But it's not enough to set you free in this fallen world. It's not enough to lead you to the deeper truth and the more abundant life, the better way. So Jesus says, you just lack one thing. If you want to be perfect, if you want to have a perfect life, if you want to be full, go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. I'm convinced Jesus wouldn't have said that same thing to everybody, but he said it to this man because that was the one thing that was keeping him from God. What's keeping you from God? What's keeping you from a fully devoted relationship with Jesus Christ? What's keeping you from following God with everything you've got? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. You you cannot serve both God and money. And then he says this in our gospel reading for today. And this is where it gets really shocking. I mean, say what? How do you make sense of this? I mean, it's hard. Jesus actually said, Luke 16, 9, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Say what? Use money to make friends? Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they'll welcome you to an eternal home. My friends are going to get me to heaven because I pay them off? If you take text out of context, that's what you get, which is why it's always so dangerous to proof text, to just skim a verse and go, ah, this is what it says, and then willy-nilly apply it mistakenly to, to daily life. We have to understand the context. Bible scholars trip all over this one, and, and they, they fight over this one, but the ones I trust the most are the ones who say this. I fully agree with this, that they say the simplest explanation is always the best. Let's see what's going on in Luke's gospel. Let's, let's take the, the view out a little bit and, and see the whole forest instead of just a few trees. Then the trees are going to make more sense. Take a look. Next screen. Jesus tells this story right before he says what he just said, this this radical, shocking statement. Use money to buy friends who will get you into heaven. That's not the way it's to be interpreted, not in the context of this story, which happened right before. Jesus says, a rich man had a manager of his wealth, and he entrusted to that manager all of his wealth, and so his wealth was managed by this manager of this rich man. And And the rich man finds out that the manager's not doing his job, he's lazy, he's made some mistakes, whatever it is. He calls the manager and he says, I'm going to fire you. The manager freaks out, says, what am I going to do? He goes off by himself and he he panics and he tries to figure something out. He says, I I know what I'll do. I'll go out and find the person who owns the the, the guy I work for. Uh, All sorts of of stuff. And he finds one. He says, how much do you owe? How much do you owe the rich man? And First guy says, um, I want to make sure I get this accurately. It's in Luke 16. He says, uh, 800 gallons of olive oil. Fine, take your bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. It's very confusing. Goes to a second guy. How, how much do you owe my employer? Uh, I, I owe him uh, 1,000 bushels of wheat. The manager says, make it 800 bushels. 
Say, what? Jesus, why, what are you trying to say? We have to understand the historical context. Jesus is Jewish. His disciples are Jewish. Everybody who's listening to him tell this story is Jewish. The rich man in this story is Jewish. The manager is Jewish. And Jewish law says you can't charge interest on a loan. <laughs> All the bankers at Hope are like, what? <laughs> That's like the whole way our thing is set up here. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant law. But what was happening back then is rich people were finding loopholes and doing end arounds over the biblical law, which says you can't charge interest when you give out a loan. So instead of giving out a loan of money, they gave out loans of commodities. They gave out olive oil and wheat and other commodities. And then they charged 20% or 50%, exorbitant amounts. Unethically high interest rates. You can't do that, Jesus says. So, see, here's the thing. Every time Jesus comes into some sort of corrupt system that he encounters in this fallen world, he says, I can't tolerate that. I can't just turn a blind eye to that. I'm going to challenge it. You've got to stop stealing from people, especially rich people from poor people, by charging ridiculously high interest rates. You can't do that anymore. Not in my kingdom. Not if you're going to follow me. That's not how you do it. So the rich man sees what the manager's done and he realizes, well, you're very shrewd. I don't like you. The rich man's corrupt too because he's blessing the, the charging of these unethical interest rates. The manager's corrupt as well. They're, they're all corrupt in this story except the victims who are given this gift. See who Jesus is for? And the Bible scholars that I trust say what Jesus is doing is he's having the manager serve the role of the person who says, Go back to the original loan. If it was 800 bushels, then it's 800 you pay back. If it was 600, it's 600 you pay back. No interest. No interest. Just give what you, were, what you received without any interest. So those people are the recipients of grace, of this gift. They signed a deal that said something else, and now they get this undeserved favor, this merit, this grace, where this guy comes who has the authority to do it and says... You don't have to pay that. The joy in their heart, right? And then we put it in the context of all these other money stories Jesus tells in this section of Luke's gospel. A, a, a man was walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was beaten and robbed by thieves, and they took all of his money. And along come religious leaders, and they, they step right over him, and, and they ignore him. And then along comes a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan, Jesus says. You know, the people you have prejudice against. That Samaritan stopped and gave to that man what he needed. And not only that, here's the part of the story you might miss. He gave him a lot of money, too. Without question, do you know why? Because love mattered more to that Samaritan than his money. He didn't care if he didn't know him. He gave it to him because he saw clearly that he needed it. Luke 15, Jesus tells another story about the prodigal son who squanders all of his father's money, God's money in this story, in this example, squanders all of these gifts. But does the father say, well, as soon as you pay me back, then we can have a relationship? No. He says, you are loved by me as your father just because you've repented and turned around and are coming home. You're welcome in the house. We're going to throw a big party for you even before you've paid me back. Who knows if the son ever paid his father back? 
We don't hear about that in the Bible. What we hear about is love. What we hear about is relationships. What we learn over and over and over again in this section of Luke's Gospel, which is loaded with teaching and stories about how we manage money is money and material things and possessions are not as important as our relationship with God and other people. We have to love first. We can't be the kind of world that says, well, if it's good for the economy and some people die, well, that's just the price we have to pay. Because, you know, economy is number one. Money comes first. So if lives have to be sacrificed, I mean, they're probably older people anyway, sometimes the logic goes. So it's just human lives. Totally upside down, Jesus says, I'm not going to allow that. You're going to have to put people ahead of economics. As important as economics are, and they are, love comes first. Relationships come first. There are things more important than making money or making sure we have enough or that the economy is even going to be better. Another story Jesus tells about a rich man and Lazarus. It's like Trading Places, the, the great movie from the 80s about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. They both die. Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man doesn't make it. And the rich man sees Lazarus in heaven standing next to Father Abraham, the hero of the Old Testament. And the rich man says, wasn't that the beggar who used to sit outside of the gate of my mansion? How did he get into heaven? And I didn't make it? Whew, there's been some terrible mistake. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know my status? Don't you know who, who, the power? I, that guy's a nobody. He's a nothing was his attitude, was his heart. Abraham, tell that slave to dip his finger in the cool water so that in the water so he can cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. And Abraham says, no, the chasm's too wide. That's not how it works. You live for the wrong God. He didn't. He's here and you missed it. You missed the life that God had for you because you worshiped the wrong idols. You worshiped the false gods. You live for things that can't give you what We've given to this man because he kept the faith. Luke 19. Jesus tells a story, or not tells a story, lives out the story about a man named Nicodemus. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know this song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see because Jesus was coming to his town. Zacchaeus is the richest man in town. And he's become the richest man in town in corrupt ways. He's a tax collector. So Jesus comes along, and what does he say? And this, this is going to challenge those of you who want a comfortable Jesus. Jesus is against rich people. Jesus is against wealth. Jesus looks at the richest man in town and says, I'm going to your house today. Which makes it very clear Jesus is coming after the rich people and the poor people and everybody in between because he knows we all need the same thing. Sometimes the rich people might need it even more because they have a harder time seeing it because they're so distracted by their wealth. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And what happened to Zacchaeus? His whole life was transformed. His whole life was transformed. And he says, not only will I pay everybody back that I, that I corruptly took money from, dishonest rates as a tax collector, I'll pay them back four times what I took from them. And Jesus says, salvation is coming to this house today for Zacchaeus. Because he found a new life. The stories go on and on and on, but here's the summary of it all. This is what the Bible teaches to set us free. When it comes to money, it's not ours. God owns it. Psalm 24 says this. So the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We manage it. 
Money does matter. It does matter. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of money. But to those who've been given much, much is expected in return. You've been given a bigger responsibility. And it'll set you free to become more faithful with that. Number two, don't fall in love with your money. Those who love their money will never have enough. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says later in the New Testament. Number three, first things first. Research over the last decade shows consistently that when we buy things for ourselves, it's the least satisfying way to use our money. Even if you buy that thing you thought you always wanted, it's least satisfying because it doesn't last. A little more satisfying, but still not totally satisfying, is you buy things that are experiences. You know, you go to the ball game, you, 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 you go on trips you, you, with people because you're social there. You're, you're doing things with other people, your loved ones. So you'll remember them longer. They'll mean more to you than, than buying that new coat. It's going to last longer. It's going to bless you more. But it still isn't enough. It's a false god. By far the most satisfying we, thing we can do with our money, just statistically, it, Leave, leave the biblical teaching over here, but it's consistent with biblical teaching. The most satisfying thing to do with our money, give it away. Donate it. Ge be generous with it. It was interesting to watch our kids grow up on Christmases when they're little. It's like, it's my turn to open the presents. Ah! I'm so excited. As they got older, somewhere around high school or so, they were way more excited about the gifts they gave. It's my turn to have all my gifts be given. I'm going to bless the family now with my total misfires of gifts, right? One time my son got me a t-shirt with a deer on it. I don't hunt, but, but there it was, right? Do you love it, Dad? I do, yes, because the heart behind it is awesome. Give it away. First things first, instead of living off the money you've got and buying things for yourself which won't satisfy first and buying the experiences which won't satisfy you, Set aside, the Bible teaches, here's the guideline, set aside a tenth, 10% a tithe, and then live off the other 90 and watch what that does to your spirit. Fourth and finally, choose wisely. You can't serve both God and money. So we're going to play a game to close that we haven't played for 15 years. It's called Choose Thine Option. And here's what I want you to do. Wherever you are, whatever campus or local site, stand up where you are, and you're going to have to choose one of three options. You don't have to, but it'd be more fun if you do. And you're going to look weird if you don't, because everybody around you is going to be doing it. So choose thine option. There are three options. Option number one is that you're Bob the Buoy out on a lake. Everybody, just show me your best Bob the Buoy. This is the easy one, all right? So it's kind of fun. You're Bob the Buoy. That's option one. Choose thine option. Option number two is you do your best disco dance. Think like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Uh, let's see it. Let's see your moves. There you go. Do you, do you have it going on? OK, you can even moonwalk if you need to. That's choose thine option number two. Choose thine option number three. Uh, we'll do uh, karate. Everybody do your best karate chop. Yeah! 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 The roundhouse kick that caused the Bears to lose on Monday night. Do whatever it is you've got. <laughs> choose thine option. I'm going to turn around. You start doing one of those three. Bowie, John Travolta, or Karate Guy, right? Take one of those three, and then I'm going to start one. I'll turn around, and whoever's doing the right one, I'm like the teacher with the key. You get to stay in the game and stand up. If you, if you don't get it right, you have to sit down. You're a loser. Okay, ready? <laughs> Just kidding. I love you. All right, band, you got to do it too. Choose an option. Buoy, disco, or karate. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah! Yeah, yeah, ha! 
If you got it right, stay up. If you didn't, sit down. And oh, by the way, there's a prize. You're like, what? Why didn't you tell me there was a prize? I think you might be living for the wrong God if you're that upset about it, all right? <laughs> the prize is pretty good, though. Are you ready for it? Free parking at whatever Lutheran Church of Hope campus you go to <laughs> for a whole year. Yeah, free. I know. So focus, all right? Round two, choose thine option. Ready? Pick one of the three. Bowie, disco, or karate? Ready? Here we go. Well, you can tell by the way I use There you go. Oh, <laughs> all the men sit down, right? They're like, <laughs> except the ones who are comfortable with their dance moves. Excellent. Well, wow, we're really thin now. Round three is the last one. This is for the free parking for a year, so zoom in. Last chance. Choose line option. Choose, choose, band. Choose. Are you ready? Choose. You're already out. Oh, I see how it is. All right, there you go. Yeah! Who's left? Stand up. Give them a hand. They're the winners. Free parking for all of them. One more round for all of us. And this one's serious. Choose thine option. In our Bible reading for today, Jesus clearly said you can't take both. One's going to be more important than the other. Love, relationships, faith, and the joy and the peace that comes with it. Or this, no matter how hard it tries, it won't, get, it won't give you what you're looking for. Listen to the people who've got it. More of it than probably any of us. Choose wisely. Choose, because everybody has to choose. One will set you free. The other one will get its hooks into you and will control the rest of your life. Choose. Amen. Let's stand up and together give God praise as we sing out this song about not being a slave to our fear or any false idol.